This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me this week, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Caston-Smith. And Sam and I are enjoying a little freestyle here. This has been kind of nice. Our church has been doing a series of messages that are sort of on the programs and how we do things around the church, you know, just, just to really kind of help get people integrated into the life of the church as we're coming into the fall. And so, Sam, topically at least, it's left us with an open door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah well, they're doing the all-in series, and so they're getting into the the kind of the ethos of how Rio is, gather, connect, grow, serve, some of our pillars for how people are supposed to get plugged in and discipled to grow closer with Jesus. And so because it's going to be a more topical series, we decided to venture out and find a book of the Bible that we would love to kind of walk through while the all-in series is going, and we found one. And Sam wasn't paying too close of attention, actually, no. It was his idea. <laughs> but um, I'm more than happy to study one of the letters of Paul. <laughs> yeah, I knew I would have to twist your arm. Did you know that? Did you think to yourself, <laughs> I'm going to have to get this guy to work double time here? Uh, so we're it's... going to be looking through the book of Galatians. Yeah, awesome book. It awesome, is. Awesome, awesome book. It is. Now, the book of Galatians was written relatively early in mm-hmm. Paul's ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, it, I... I want to say probably about 50 A.D. Is that your mm-hmm. understanding also? Yeah, I'd put it between 48 and 50 A.D. So this is less than two decades after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Right. So this is the infancy of the church. It's written before any of the Gospels have been written. It's Paul's first letter or one of his first couple of letters for sure. Um, and so this is fresh. The, the church is just now beginning to blossom all over the place. Well, let's also be clear. Paul is not senile yet. <laughs> I don't know that he ever was. But what I'm saying is the events that happened with the resurrection and with Jesus uh, returning from the dead and, and encountering him on the road to Damascus and all of these different things that took place in Paul's life, those things would have been absolutely razor sharp clear to him in his recollection. Mm-hmm. There's no point... There's no chance that he was mistaken. You know, mm-hmm. if you age long enough, at some point you're going to be kind of like, and the giraffe came back from the store and <laughs> brought us cookies. And you're like, what? You know, it's like, <laughs> when did that happen? So, yeah, the distance, the distance between Paul's conversion, which is not long after the resurrection, the distance between the book of Galatians and the resurrection is a shorter distance than me and my conversion at 23 years old. Yeah. So, yeah. which seems like yesterday to me. So, this, these are not, you know, forever ago things that he's writing about. This is fresh in the rearview mirror. Right. So, the other thing that we want to lay down kind of as a, as a introductory comment is that the tone of this letter is interesting to me because mm-hmm. 
there are two things that that occurred to me right away when I started reading this. The first was Paul's angry. You know, I could see the steam. <laughs> you know, he was he was breaking feathers and tipping over ink wells and things like that or whatever. He was upset. This was yeah. you know his topic was getting him very upset. And he, Very firm. And we'll, he didn't we'll, have a lot firm. of the niceties. Yeah. You know, usually when Paul starts off, it's like, Sam, you, you know, stories of your great faith are being told all across the area. Uh, <laughs> I never cease to make mention of you in my prayers and how grateful I am for your support. Mm-hmm. All that sort of stuff that normally comes out of Paul. Paul is like, no. Paul, mm-hmm. an apostle. Grace and peace <laughs> to you. Now sit down. We got some stuff to talk about. That That's true. This is the one letter that Paul writes to to churches, you know, like the church in Ephesus or Corinth or Rome or whatever. It's the one letter where he doesn't say that he's grateful for them. That doesn't mean he's not grateful, right. obviously. Right. But he wants to get down to business because whatever it is that the Galatians have been doing is really bothering Paul. Right. You get that sense, and he's very strong in this letter. So let's start with the greeting first, go through that, and then we'll then we'll jump right into what it is he's upset about, because Paul doesn't waste any time, and neither shall we. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you at peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that greeting, Sam, there's nothing about that greeting that's unpleasant. It's just mm-hmm. what's missing, that, that you know all the niceties are not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. He's... He's jumping straight to it. It's it, you know he's wishing them grace. He's he's asking for peace upon them. He, you know it's very it's very godly, but it's it's like exactly what you said. He's not going. Oh my dear Galatians, right? Yeah, you know? right. He's 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 got some issues with them, yeah. which we find out here in verse six. Paul jumps right in with, "I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ." And are turning to a different gospel. What in the world is happening here? So one of the things that you found, and this is the history that Paul comes out of. Um, he was a Pharisee. He was, and not just a Pharisee. He was a zealous Pharisee, which means that that particular branch of Pharisee that came out of uh, one of the schools of thought that allowed for violence. Um, they would actually put people to death if they believed that they were bringing blasphemy into the Jewish communities. And so, like, Paul oversees one of the first martyr, the first martyr in the scripture, Stephen. Um, he's the one who's holding the coats as people stone Stephen. And there is a, there's a sect of Judaism that believes that the Messiah cannot come into the world until the people of God are righteous. And, and when I say that they're righteous, like they in and of themselves are righteous. They're following the law. They're being, you know, to, to the letter. They're, they're keeping all, all of the statutes. They are, they are holy and entirely different. And so Paul comes from a school that says, okay, when you see any part of, you know, the Jewish community that's out of bounds, stamp it out. And so when Paul has his conversion, he's going 
you know, on the road to Damascus because he's heard about some Jews that are chasing after this Jesus guy who claimed to be God, who claimed to be the Messiah. Paul sees that as utter blasphemy, and so he's going to Damascus to do what? To stamp them out because they are getting in the way of the Messiah being able to come back by perpetuating what he thinks is a wickedness. And so all through Galatia, all through these different communities where, where the Jewish synagogues were and everything else, when you would have, they had, they were zealous for the law because they believed that them being good enough had to happen before the Messiah would come, which we look at and go, Oh, good luck. You'll be waiting forever. (laughs) You know, if you're waiting for the people of God to be good enough, you'll be waiting a long time. Yeah. But Paul, is coming in and he's writing to a community, right? And this is a community who has said, okay, yeah, Jesus, Messiah, okay, we buy that. And now we still need to keep the law and we still need to be good enough. And our hope of the kingdom of God and our hope of citizenship in heaven and our hope for all of the promises of the gospel, we still have to be good enough. And so they're walking around taking, they were called Judaizers because it was like, yeah, okay, we'll take this Jesus person, but we're still going to add all the requirements of the law and throw them on people's shoulders. And so they were called Judaizers. And they're still every bit as zealous as you know the old school Jews were about holiness and the law and keeping all of the details of the law. And that was and that's Paul's like, whoa, that's not a gospel. That is not good news. We weren't able to do it before. We had failed miserably to be righteous for centuries and centuries and centuries of redemptive history. The Savior has come, and yet you're still telling people that they have to be good enough. That is not good news. And the Judaizers sort of had a long history of protecting their ethnic purity. Um, Mm -hmm. They were, you know, just to say, it was was a very racist sort of thing. It's like they were like, if you're not Mm -hmm. one of us, and by that I mean one of our clan – uh, well, then you've certainly got to take on all of our trappings. You've got to go through this circumcision. You've got to follow our laws. Um, if, you, if you want to be one of us, you've got to live like one of us. Um, and they seem to have this sort of adapt and extend and integrate uh, attitude toward things. As I was looking at what was going on, um, it was like, well, okay, we're not talking about you, that you have to get rid of these guys. But you've got to get them to, to, to keep these rules, to follow these rules. And if they're not doing that, well, then you can't eat with them. You can't hang out with them. You know? And mm-hmm. I almost felt like I was dealing with the Borg a little bit from Star Trek. It's like the Judaizers sort of came in and, and they absorbed whatever you were doing. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we got one of those too. And I think that in this case, that's a little bit of the, you know, oh, that, uh, the whole uh, gospel thing. Uh, re- relating mm-hmm. to how do you relate to God? We got one of those. You 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 got mm-hmm. yours. We've got ours. It's okay. Um, and yet they they yeah. they didn't. It wasn't the same thing at all. But they were pointing to it as if it were completely. They got everything backwards from from the racial thing. I mean, we'll start it there. If you go back throughout all the promises of Scripture, God comes along to. Abraham, for example, you know, Father Abraham, and he says, I'm going to call you, and through your seed, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. So, God's mission statement from the moment he begins to set aside a people for himself is through this people group, 
I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. In other words, the purpose statement is not just for the people group. It's through them that all the nations are going to be blessed, but my heart is for all the nations. You look through the through the prophets, Isaiah is writing that the purpose of the Messiah is to be a light to the Gentiles. It's to go out, he's to go out to all nations. And so what had happened was from the beginning, God had said, no, 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 my people, which ultimately comes through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and becomes the nation of Israel, my people is going to be set apart so that all the nations of the world could be blessed. And through time and centuries, they said, we're special and everyone else is inferior. And by the time you come to the first century, it's not just everyone else is inferior, they're wicked, they're awful, right. they're, they're disgusting, they're dogs. And so when, you, when the gospel comes along and it's reemphasizing what God's intention was from the beginning to go out to all the nations, the Jewish, a lot of members of the Jewish community are utterly racist, like you're talking about. Absolutely not. There is no part of the covenant of God that is meant for the Gentiles. And and that's totally upside down. It was totally intended for the Gentiles. God was calling the Jews to be a light, and, and the Messiah was to be a light to the Gentiles. And then the second part of this is they've gotten the whole point of the gospel turned upside down. So Paul's like, whoa, I can't even believe that you've already forgotten everything that was so special and wonderful about the gospel. You see, for centuries, the Jews had been acting like, we have to be good enough in order to get the favor of God. We obey in the hope that God will accept us. And the gospel comes along and turns everything on its head, and it says, you'll never be good enough on your own. You're incapable of keeping the law perfectly and and being worthy of God's favor. So to the contrary, God loves you so much that he sent Jesus into the world to take your sin, to give you his righteousness, and so you're accepted up front. And now, because you're accepted, now you live to obey out of gratitude. You're not trying to earn God's favor anymore. You're not enslaved to this idea of, oh, I got to be good enough. I've got to be good enough. And you never will be. You'll never be good enough for God. That's absurd to even think that you could be. He's God. But that's a message that should liberate people and make them so joyful and entirely different from anything this world has ever seen. And yet, after hearing such an incredible news and after hearing the grace of Christ and everything else, they go right back to, yeah, 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 Jesus did all this, whatever, yeah. I got to earn it. And yeah. so does everyone else around me. And they've already forgotten what makes the gospel so absolutely precious. Yeah. Well, and Paul reminds him of that in verse 7 where he says, not that there is another one, like there is not another gospel. There's no, there is no mm-hmm. other plan. This is it. Yeah. What? What other hope is going to save you? Right. Name it. Like, yeah. there is no other hope. There, yeah. There's one piece of good news that restores you to God. There is no other gospel. There's right. none. And then he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 8, he says, this verse, when I first read this <laughs> verse in Bible, in Bible college, I thought to myself, that seems a little strong. <laughs> so Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you already in the past, let him be 
accursed. And then in case somebody was not paying attention, verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, that meaning from Paul before in the past, let him be accursed. So that Hmm. verse, that word accursed, is it's hard to really in English it's really hard to represent exactly how harsh that is but what Paul is basically saying is let this one be cast into hell let this one get mm-hmm. cut off from God's grace God's riches God's people basically this is go directly to hell do not pass go do not collect $200 off you go mm-hmm. uh, pretty serious stuff yeah that that Greek word some people may have heard before, it's anathema, and that's that's exactly what it means, is what you're saying. And and to gain context for that, you know, if we think about physical life, and I and I put before you somebody who's a serial murderer, you know, sure. a Hitler, a mass murderer, genocidal maniac, whatever, who's taken tons of lives, you know, that's a pretty awful thing. And we're it's hard to be merciful towards somebody that evil. But what I want you to understand is Paul is looking at this through spiritual lenses. And, you know, if, if I took people's life in this world, you know, I'm robbing them of 80 years. But if you're teaching doctrine that people are buying into and the doctrine itself is keeping them from salvation, then you're taking their eternal life. You're not just taking 80 years or right. 60 years or however much they have left. This is like eternal mass murder. Right. These these people who are perverting the gospel, it is a very, very serious thing in Paul's eyes, as it should be. Yeah. And he's saying, even if an angel comes and does that, let them go to hell. Um, and it's like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's like super intense. Well, and it goes but to it also, I was going to say, it goes to what Jesus said, right? Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the mm-hmm. one who can kill the soul. Mm-hmm. But but think about what that does to the the authority of Scripture and the gospel. What Paul is saying is nobody's entitled to come and change this doctrine around. Like this this message came from God, and even if an angel and I mean I've heard somebody preach on this passage, and they said, imagine being in on Sunday morning. And all of a sudden, the sanctuary is filled with a blinding light, and an angel appeared above the altar, and everybody in there would be on their faces and terrified or running for the doors. <laughs> you know, it's an angel. And that angel said, You need to work hard for your salvation. You need to earn it. It's the job of the Christian to look at that angel and say, Go to hell. Like, you have no authority to overturn the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. Even an angel has no authority to overthrow the gospel. It's the unshakable foundation upon which everything else rests for Paul, and nothing, nothing is allowed to challenge that. You know, one of the commentaries that I read, and I don't want to give people the name of it because it's then they're going to recognize oh this is where mark gets all of his weird stuff from <laughs> but there is one commentary that i feel like the the guys that worked on this commentary in particular they were looking for the and here's another take on that um kind of thing <laughs> so some of these when we come up with these odd things you know they're just pointing out like 
a really extreme example of something. And in this case, they fixated in this verse on this idea of an angel from heaven as opposed to an angel sent by God. And their contention in this commentary was that if an angel was sent by God, such an angel could never speak a false gospel. Simply wouldn't happen. That angel couldn't lie. Hmm. Um, But that by saying an angel from heaven, then you're taking into the realm of possibility angels who were once a part of heaven but perhaps were swept out. I don't know, maybe when Lucifer was kicked out, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so what they were basically saying was that don't think that this is a silly example. What we're saying to you is it is possible for some pretty magnificent-looking creatures to come in and tell you that's not Mm -hmm. the only gospel. And I'm telling you right now, no matter how magnificent they are, you tell them, let them be accursed. Cut, mm-hmm. you know, drive them out from among you. Do not even let them be in your presence. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve cool. Brown used to say, that's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's true. Like yeah. the Christian needs to have deeply buried and seared into his heart the understanding of what the gospel means because there will come seasons where you feel like a failure, like you don't measure up and you don't need an angel. You don't need a slick, you know, heretical preacher telling you that God can't love someone like you. Your heart does just as good a job saying God couldn't possibly love someone like me. There's no way. I mean, do you see how I live? Do you see how I fail? Do you see how I stumble? And Paul is coming here saying, hey, 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 no, no, no. That is, you can't accept that. It is absolutely contrary to the gospel. If an angel told you that, you'd tell him to go to hell. The slick preacher, you say, let him be accursed. If your heart is telling you that, that's when you preach the gospel to yourself and say, that is not the truth of the gospel. The gospel comes by Christ. It is a gift given to me that I grab hold of by faith, not because I'm good enough, but because he is good enough. I suppose it's worth pulling back at this point and looking at this idea that, um, you know, we we talk about the things that we do with Church United all the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. Church United being a collection of uh, churches in, in Broward County and in Southeast Florida, which are united around the principles of this true gospel, this gospel of grace, this gospel that you can't be good enough, that Jesus died and paid for your sins, that forgiveness is a free gift from him, that you have to put your full faith and trust and reliance in him, that there's nothing you're ever going to do that's going to earn it, you know, that sort of thing. That's the that's the gospel that we're talking about here. And that really is the central flagpole upon you know around mm-hmm. which the church on this planet, in this world, should be planted. And then from there, there's a whole lot of things that vary in importance. I'm not saying that, you know, every single thing uh, is meaningless other than that. There are some very real Mm -hmm. distinctions between the churches, different churches that are out there. But the fact is that for most of what we do, which is sharing the gospel with our community, as we minister to them in the name of the Lord, that the, that being centralized to the gospel 
And, and let's just say a few other essentials um, are enough for us to cooperate together as part of the greater body of Christ in this area. I'm saying all mm-hmm. that essentially to explain why it is that this is really enough for us to be comfortable in getting together with other churches. For some denominations and some churches out there, Lutherans, Catholics, great examples. Um, Lutherans don't even get along with other Lutherans half the time. <laughs> they don't. If they're not in synod with them, they don't hang out with them. You know, even if they're the same Missouri Synod or whatever, if they're not actually in whatever it is, convention or some kind of, it's like, we don't hang out with you guys. So yeah. there are there are denominations out there who are very picky about who they, you know, come yeah. together and wrap and and give each other the big bro hug. And what we're saying is, it is the gospel that that sets off Amen. and defines that for us at our church. And and you can, I mean, you take a step back and you can see how this becomes corrosive in churches when the gospel's not at the center. And so if, if you have a theology, even if it's just because you're mistaken and you, you know, your, your mind slips away from the gospel at times, but if your theology is based on works, there's one of two directions that it's going to lead your church. Either you, you've got a bunch of people who are kind of like Pharisees and say, we've got it together. If only the rest of the world didn't, you know, wasn't so terrible. And you get people who are very puffed up because they feel like they're cutting the mustard, right? And so you're either going to have people who are super puffed up that treat everyone else like they're inferior because you've got it figured out. That's one side of, of where whole, you know trying to prove yourself by works takes you. And on the other side, you get somebody who is down and out who feels like they can never, ever be worthy of God's love. And right. they're just absolutely in the dumps. They feel totally depressed and worthless and like there's no hope for them. And the gospel comes and it just destroys both of those possibilities because sure. what the gospel does is it comes to you and says, you don't measure up. There's no chance of you measuring up. You 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 failed it so bad that God had to take on flesh and come and die to make you good enough. So, can you be puffed up? Absolutely not. You have no business thinking you deserve heaven or God more than any other person because it humbles you and you recognize what your salvation cost. But at the same time, are you then allowed to wallow and say, I'm no good and I don't matter and I'm not valuable? No way can you say that. Because God didn't just come and shame you and kind of wag his finger at you and say, now I have to die. Good job, Sam. (laughs) No, he does it with joy because I'm so unbelievably precious to him, which is hard for me to wrap my mind around. So simultaneously, what religion does in puffing people up or shoving them into the mud with guilt, the gospel says, hold on a minute, you're way more valuable than you could have ever imagined and you can't boast about it at all because it's not your holiness that purchased your salvation. Right. It, 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 it makes everyone valuable, and it should make everyone gratefully humble. Right, right. So Paul now, he's going to uh, you know, make a quick aside here uh, where he asks in verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul is saying, hey, you know, I'm not concerned here with what men think. I'm not concerned with what these Judaizers think of me. 
I'm honestly not even concerned with what you think of me. I'm not here to please men. I'm here to please God. Um, and really, honestly, isn't that the bottom line for all of us? That we're here to please God, not men. Um, that it doesn't mean we, doesn't mean we have to go around looking to irritate men. <laughs> I'm not trying to try to say that, but the fact is that we're not here to cater to the whims of of men. For one thing, because what men want, if you don't like what they're asking you for, just wait a minute; it'll change. <laughs> You know, wait till tomorrow. It'll be something different. So Mm -hmm. what God is interested in you doing is the same thing all the time. He's not Mm -hmm. interested. He's not changing constantly. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, I think, what Paul's getting at here. Totally. Like, he's... He is not going to back down from the truth that God revealed to him with the gospel. Right. Like that is one area where he will offend people. He is not going to back down. Um, and he, he feels totally freed up. I love one of my favorite things that Paul does comes in first um, Corinthians chapter four. He's talking about, you know, how he's being judged by all these different people who have opinions about what he's saying. Sure. And he says, you know what? I care very, and it sounds like he's being dismissive, but he's not. It's really instructive for us. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. And what he's saying is, like, God has already judged me. And God has looked at me and he has given his son to declare me righteous. And so I am not going to let the approval of of chasing down men who say, great job, Paul. Good job, Sam. I'm not going to let that run my life because God has already declared a verdict over my life and I'm freed up from the opinions of men. God is the only one I care about. Right. And because God's the only one I care about, I really care about people because God cares about people. Right. And so there are some things to which the Christian has to be unwavering and being willing to offend men. And the gospel is primary among them. Yeah. But being a Christian doesn't mean, like you said, that we need to look for things to fight with people about, which sadly happens a lot. I was going to say, it seems like, like that happens all the time. <laughs> we, we need to pick the fights that are important. And if God's word calls, calls for it, we can't violate it. And right. the apostles give us that example, too. Like, right. they, they will comply until complying means you have to stand against God's word. At that point, we need to be willing to offend and pull back. Now, there's something that, that uh, is said here in the first two verses, in, in verses 11 and 12, that I have a question about. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Like, I didn't come up with this. Neither mm-hmm. did any man come up with this. For I did not receive it from any man, this is verse 12, nor was I taught it, but I received mm-hmm. it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, when Paul says that he was not taught this gospel, but rather he received it by a revelation, what's he what's he saying there? So this is this is actually really important. And Paul is going to in all of his letters, he's going to be talking about how he's an authentic apostle. Like you could tell, there's a dispute that he has 
that he's engaging with. And, and this is how I imagine it going. Everywhere that Paul goes, he's showing up and saying, hey, here's the message of the Lord. And everybody's saying, yeah, but you weren't one of the original apostles. You weren't right. one of the people that Jesus called when he was alive. Because Paul comes to faith after Jesus is dead, resurrected, ascended into heaven. He's on the way to go persecute Christians in the city of Damascus. And Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus with a blinding light. And then Paul says that after he's confronted by Jesus, that he goes off to Arabia, which is a huge generic term at this period in time. And so he goes somewhere off by himself for Arabia, and he's going to make it a point like, I didn't get this from the apostles, so my... of Jesus Christ was given to me firsthand by the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. And I received it from him, not by Peter. I didn't get it from Matthew. This is this is directly revealed to me, and I'm showing my you know bona fides as an apostle. And so, if you look, one of the I get, Drew was asking me this question last week, and she says, you know, before they had the Council of Nicaea and they codified which books were going to be in the Bible, which didn't happen until the 300s, how did they know? Like, how was their agreement upon what books? consisted of the Bible. And the reality is you can look through all the early church fathers and there was agreement that you had the Torah, the writings of Moses, which was called the law, the prophets, the historical books were largely agreed upon long before Jesus came along. And then when you got to the New Testament, what was considered the word of God was the writings of the apostles. And so if an apostle wrote it, then it had the authority, the weight as being inspired by the Spirit of God, and it was authoritative over everyone's life. And so when Paul is saying, no, 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 I did not get my gospel from men. It came from the Spirit of God, from God himself. What he's saying is, I'm an authentic apostle, and my writings are just as valid as those written by the apostles or narrated by the apostles. Right. Yeah, the Council of Nicaea, um, we haven't, you and I haven't had a chance to do a, a podcast or, or a class or whatever on a series of New Testament manuscripts and, and how we'd got the different books of the New Testament. But at the Council of Nicaea, I think that people were, were, would probably be more surprised about the things that were included at the last moment than about anything that was excluded. So my answer to, mm-hmm. my answer to Drew would have been, that everybody did generally agree on what was Scripture. What the Council of Nicaea mm-hmm. really did was to bring certain other letters in saying these two have the characteristics and carry the weight of Scripture. Um, but it wasn't as though they said, um, listen, I didn't like John. John was just way too much about <laughs> feelings. He wanted to talk about his feelings. He was... He was in touch with them, and it just the whole thing made me nervous. It was like watching a Hallmark movie, so we got to get rid of the Gospel of John. All right, who wants to get rid of the Gospel of John? It wasn't like that at the Council of Nicaea. There were some things like, you know, okay, we've got this letter to Philemon. (laughs) Let's talk about this for a while. Um, Yeah, and but that that notion that apostles were authoritative is why sure. you know a couple of hundred years after Jesus when you have all the Gnostic heresies going on and you have sure. these forgeries that come forward like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas right. and you get you know 
quacks on the History Channel being like, this is a conspiracy of the church to hide these gospels. You know, no, they were forgeries, but they were done in the name of an apostle because that was the way that they could be authoritative. And we know church, all historians basically agree that these are Gnostic forgeries that come centuries later. Um, but that's why you wanted, if you were going to be authoritative and you were going to be considered, considered on par with scripture, you had to be considered an apostle. And so Paul and this, you know, these verses 11 and 12, I didn't receive it from man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I got my word directly from God, therefore I am an apostle. Right. And furthermore, there's no possibility that I'm mistaken. That's the, that's mm-hmm. the other thing to me that if, if Paul comes to me and says, hey, everything that I've heard, everything that I'm repeating to you is something that Jesus told me. Jesus gave me this. I didn't have mm-hmm. to get it from even an apostle, which is still which is a great source, but I got it from Jesus himself. Therefore, I have no fear that anything that I'm saying is wrong. Mm-hmm. So Paul goes on to kind of talk about you know where he was um, in terms of his former life. He says in verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Well, I want to pause there for a second just because Paul, once again, is giving us a huge run-on sentence, which is hard to break free from. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? It's like it's just yeah. this big run-on sentence in the Greek. But he's, he's, he's ticking so many boxes here that I don't want to let it mm-hmm. you know, kind of go on too much further. You know, his former life in Judaism, which is how he looked at it, but I don't want to make too much of that. I mean, it's like it wasn't like Paul said, it wasn't me. I didn't do that stuff. You right. know, some other guy came and did it. And he looked like me, and, and he was holding all your cloaks, but that wasn't me, you know. Um, I think that he, he owns that what it was that he did before. The, mm-hmm. He owns what was wrong. Um, so, so yes. but the case that he's making here is you know something really, really profound and drastic had to happen to me for me to be teaching you what I'm teaching you now because you knew me back then. You heard you heard right. of my former life. You right. knew how I once was. And so when, when there's some key words that he's you know throwing into this passage, like when he says, I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Well, zealous, there was a two branches of Pharisees. One, and I'm sorry for this, but nerding out for a moment. <laughs> One, and these these came before Jesus, and so they were two big rivals. And you had the Hillel school, and you remember we talked about this with divorce. The Hillel view on divorce was, eh, you can divorce for any reason. The Hillel view on holiness and keeping the law was, you know what, we need to be a little bit more friendly toward Gentiles, and the law, you know, do you do your best kind of stuff, right? Where the Shammai was like, you may only get divorced for reasons of adultery, and they advocated, if you find 
unrighteousness in your midst, stamp it out, even if it means persecuting them. And so when Paul is trained up, he's trained up by a guy named Gamaliel, who's from the Hillel school. You remember in Acts 5, when they're like, we need to stamp out the church, and Gamaliel is like, no, 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 take it easy. If if you're fighting against the church, if it's really of God, you'll find that you're fighting against God, so just kind of let it be, let it play out. He's a Hillel. He's of the Hillel school. Paul came along and thought, that doesn't work. This new thing is infecting, this new Christianity, this new belief is infecting the Jewish world. We have to stamp it out because there's no way the two can survive with each other. And so he shifts over to the Shammai school, the zealous side, where he's willing to persecute. And he's, like he says, man, I'm willing to do violence, I'm willing to destroy it, and I'm I'm making a name for myself. And all of a sudden, he goes from that kind of zeal, have nothing to do with Gentile. If you're not keeping the law, I'll kill you to the law can't take you to heaven, and I'm now the apostle to the Gentiles. And it's like, what? (laughs) This guy? Like, one of the most radical transformations, one of the most radical salvations in the history of the world is this man. And what he's saying is, you know this message didn't come from me. (laughs) Because it is a 180 degree departure from what I was. Right. Right. So, when he also says that, I mean, there's there's two things that come out as, in, in this section that I just read earlier, which is number one, Paul recognized that God had determined the purpose for his life, that he would become the apostle to the Gentiles even before he was born. And then secondly, that he did in fact have that that purpose in his life, that that he was, uh, you know, it was pleased to reveal his son to me uh, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul, like, you know, and, and you wonder whether it's a situation like, did he have a sense that that was the case? And he was always like, oh, no, <laughs> hey, Jonah. This, is, this is coming upon me. I am not preaching to the Gentiles. Right. Is he the next Jonah? Is he looking at Nineveh going, nope, uh-uh, not going to do that? <laughs> or is it was it something that when it happened? When Jesus said, I want you to go to the Gentiles, did, do you think that Paul suddenly went, wow, okay, a lot of stuff makes sense now? You know, he, Paul grew up in uh, the city of Tarsus, which is on the, the southern coast of Turkey, which is a hop, skip, and a jump away from Galatia. You know, we didn't mention where Galatia was, but Galatia kind of runs right through the center of modern-day Turkey. Sure. And it was, it was called Galatia because it was settled by Gauls. And so these people that were, you know, Celtic background had migrated, immigrated from France and all that region and had come and settled here. And they were considered, they were given favored status by Augustus, the emperor, who's the emperor when Jesus is born. And so they're extremely pro Rome. They're very much about all the culture of Rome. And so Paul would have grown up in this same region where you have similar things going on. And he's 
in this synagogue that's trying to preserve a Jewish way of life in a culture that is totally overrun with the Greco-Roman view of sexuality and the Greco-Roman view of mercy, which basically was none at all, and all of these different things. And he sees the outside world as absolute wickedness. And his whole life had been trained up. We've got to insulate ourselves from this outside wicked world. He's not growing up in Israel. Paul does not grow up in Israel. He grows up more so in the Roman world than any of the apostles would have. So, he knows what it's like to insulate, and he has seen the wickedness of the empire and its culture. Yeah. And so, it's it's drilled into him that we cannot allow the foreign influence to get in. So, Paul's actually, he grows up in Nineveh, you know. But he's growing up in the Roman Gentile world inside a little cloister of Jewish people, whereas the apostles are growing up in Galilee where they're surrounded by Jews. Um, Paul, very much the opposite. His tent-making business would have been largely selling, and his dad's tent-making business would have been largely among Gentiles. And so I think he grows up with a resentment for the culture and and a desire to insulate it to where he's had this resentment building up in him. Mm his whole life. And when he goes down to Jerusalem and gets trained by Gamaliel and gets steeped more in the Jewish traditions, I think he's developing a hatred. He sees what the Gentile culture is like his whole life. Mm. That's interesting because we all know about Paul calling on his Roman citizenship later Mm -hmm. on when he's in front of the, the, those that are judging him in the court. Is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen? So we know that Paul, at certain times, found it convenient that yeah. he was a Roman. <laughs> um, he did. You know? Yeah, so sure. Like, uh, uh, totally true. Listen, I appeal to Caesar. <laughs> you know, did a Roman just appeal to Caesar? Don't touch him. <laughs> yep. Send him off to Rome because that's the rule. And um, on the other hand, you also, you know, I, I see the same Paul who said, if it would be possible for my countrymen mm-hmm. to be saved, I myself would be cut off from God. Mm-hmm. You know, so you see a uh, a guy who both finds his his Gentile side, you know, useful at times, but loves the Jewish side so much that he mm-hmm. would give his own soul for the souls of his countrymen. Yeah, his and. Uh, and to be honest, like you can imagine why that's the case. If if I were to ask you, and this is of course not a foolproof illustration, but if I were to ask you, you know, take the average person who's in a pew in a comfortable church mm-hmm. in in America, where there's you know there's not persecution, they, it doesn't cost you much to be a part of a community of faith. Right. And then I said, okay, now I'm going to bring in an average Christian from a church that's in the middle of Iran. Yeah. Which one's going to be more zealous for the faith? Which one's going to be sold out? Which one's going to Absolutely. be willing to sacrifice? And and so, you know, Paul is not being persecuted in Tarsus. You know, Jews are seen as kind of yuck. You know, they're, they're substandard by the Romans. They're seen as second-class citizens almost. But you right. could be a Roman citizen as a Jew. You could have commerce. Um, but it's kind of like, yeah, you're, you're a Jew. You know, don't evangelize your stuff with us. But... 
Paul knows what it costs to be a Jew and a Gentile culture, sure. whereas the apostles don't know what it means so right. much. They know what it's like to be a Jew in a Jew-dominated land that's controlled by Gentiles, but the majority of Paul's city when he's growing up is Gentiles. Right. So, so he gets the he. It means more to him to be Jewish than it does, say, for somebody in Galilee, which right. is bizarre but true. So, Paul, at the end of verse sixteen, uh, he says, "We'll pick right up where he said." I did not immediately consult with anyone. Verse seventeen. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Mm -hmm. Arabia was, I think you made mention of this earlier, was this great expanse of nothing, you know? (laughs) Um, So why did Paul choose to go to Arabia, do you know? You know, there is so much debate over where exactly Paul goes here because there's different definitions and borderlines that people draw for what Arabia would have meant for Paul. There's one location where we know for sure Paul included Arabia. A lot of people think that Arabia comes up to Damascus, would have included all of Israel that goes out down into Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. But the only other time the word Arabia is used in all of Scripture is in Galatians 4 when Paul is giving us an allegory and he says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. That's the only other mention that right. you get that uses Arabia. And there's part of me that wonders, you know, here you have this prophet who's zealous for the Lord, who is confronted by God, and he runs away to Arabia. And it's like, you know what? Moses, before he goes into ministry, God calls up on Mount Sinai, right? And mm-hmm. says, hey, I got a message for you that you're going to go tell the world. Elijah, who goes up on, by the way, who goes up on Mount Sinai, what's the first words out of Elijah's mouth when he goes up on Mount Sinai to have it out with God after he's been persecuting false prophets and everything else, which is kind of Paul's cup of tea? Elijah goes up on Mount Sinai and says, I have been zealous. There's that word again. Mm -hmm. Zealous for the faith. And then he talks about how he feels alone and God gives him a message. And there's part of me that wonders if if Paul is thinking to himself, everything I've ever learned, like everything is being turned upside down. I need to hear from the Lord. And he doesn't make a pit stop to hear from the apostles, which you would think would add credibility, not take away, right? Like, hey, no, I I got the blessing of James and Peter and everybody else. No, he beelines and goes straight to Arabia, wherever that is. The only thing we know that's in Arabia is Mount Sinai. And it makes me wonder if Paul goes to Mount Sinai or the region of Mount Sinai to say, God, I need a word. And here, what is he saying? God spoke to me. God gave me a message, not the apostles. I heard from him in Arabia. And he's... It makes me wonder, as he's saying, you know, I got the same kind of treatment that Moses and Elijah got, where God spoke to me right. at Sinai, maybe. Total Sam theory, yeah. but it's, I feel good about it. it I mean, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it, just, it doesn't really say. It's not like he yeah. went to Arabia and attended the world-famous school of the shifting sands of Judaism and <laughs> Gentiles getting along. Um Then in verse 18, he says, Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. If you don't know who Cephas is, that's Peter. Mm -hmm. Um, That's his his given name as a person. It was Jesus who called him Peter. 
Then verse mm-hmm. 19, but I saw none I love of how them. God gets three years, Peter gets 15 days. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> who, who yeah. shaped Paul's mind? I mean, it's like he's emphasizing I'm not just carbon copy of what the apostle said. Like, I was discipled by God himself. Sure. Sure. Then he says that he saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, which is another interesting thing about, you know, we, we talk about those those things that really just sort of ring true to us. Um, you know, the fact is that before Jesus returns from the dead, none of his brothers mm-hmm. particularly followed him. You know, they they just, yeah, that's Jesus. He's our brother. He's a little off. You yeah, know, he's from they the, said he was out of his mind. Yeah, you know, they thought he was out of his mind. He's from the crazy side of the family. We don't talk <laughs> to him much. Uh, we never ask him any questions at Passover. That's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And yet, after the resurrection, James becomes arguably one of the three pillars of the church at Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Oh, think. for sure. Yeah. I think. I think he's the head. Yeah. The head of the church in Jerusalem. I, I agree with that also. But obviously, Cephas is important. There's, mm-hmm. you know, and there's others that are important, but. Um, but James, at the resurrection, the, you know, the, we're told that Jesus appeared to James specifically right. Right. in addition to the apostles. And that's, as far as we know, that's his conversion moment. Yep. So it's, it's seeing the risen God, your brother you grew up with, that all of a sudden makes him go from my brother's a little off right. to worshiping at his feet, willing to lay down your life right. and worship of your brother. That would be really weird. And, and then you say to yourself, okay, well, maybe – Maybe he just saw an opportunity here. Maybe that James saw an opportunity to make good on the reputation of his brother Jesus. Uh, People were spreading the rumor around that he was back from the dead and nobody could seem to find the body. So, you know what? Let's just start telling everybody that, yeah, yeah, no, no, he's, he's the Messiah. He came back. Well, that's good, except that James led a particularly harsh and aesthetic life like he he was mm-hmm. he was called old camel knees uh i think <laughs> I, I think i was the first church father to call him that but he was called old camel knees because of the fact that he prayed so much that the skin of his knees had become leathery because he was down on his knees so often in prayer and like most of the others he headed off and and to martyrdom you know at the end of his life and at no point did he go, okay, 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 enough of this. I, I, I got enough out of it. You know, um, <laughs> I, you know, I was fooling, you know, just kidding. JK, JK, can you let me out of here? Um, and he never did that. You know, it's like once his conversion took place, once he had taken a stand that said, my brother, you know, Jesus, which was a very common name at the time, my brother Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord God Almighty. Once he had made that confession, he never backed off from it, not even for an instant. That's the kind of thing that rings true to me about the behavior of these men. I don't, I don't know if it's as big with everybody as, a, as it is with me, but it sure matters to me. Yeah, and, and in addition to that, you know, this life of humility and, 
And, you know, it's not like he had the lavish lifestyle, but he's also martyred along with the other apostles. But early church tradition tells us that he was thrown down from a great height around the temple complex. And when he fell, they expected him to be dead. He did not die. And so a crowd came around and beat him with fuller's clubs that you would use for laundry to beat clothes. And so they, they literally beat him to death just outside the temple complex in Jerusalem. So this is the privileged life he got by giving his life to serve his brother. Anytime somebody wants to point to the example of his disciples saying, they made out pretty good for themselves. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Did they? Yeah, point point to one. Yeah, let's, you know? let's see one. Just, well, just one. Well, now John died a natural death after surviving being boiled in oil, according to tradition. <laughs> he managed to die and, a natural and death. And exiled on the island of Patmos. Right, which, of course, Patmos was hardly downtown Rome. You know, not a lot of amenities on the island of Patmos. <laughs> so, and anyway, um, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul goes on to say, in what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. It's like he's, he's, he's like stressing again and again to these guys. This is not from man. I got this in revelation from God. I am not lying to you. Mm-hmm. Almost as if it's like, I just have to imagine that his ears are so full of being told, well, who are you, Paul? You weren't here when Jesus was actually teaching. You didn't sit around with him all the times like the other apostles did. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. And, and you just get that sense of frustration that he's like, I'm trying to tell you, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not lying to you. I'm not making this up. One of the other things that he's doing is he's he's actually speaking into the Jewish culture of the day where you know how when Jesus give he expounds on the law he says hey all of this stuff applies to your heart you know and he'll say you know if you're angry in your heart you've committed murder if you're lusting after somebody you've committed adultery sure one of the things that he goes on and says is you know when you take an oath let your yes be yes and your no be no like you should always be honest regardless of whether you have to take an oath or not sure now in Jewish culture, there was a difference in their understanding of the law, which is absurd. It's nowhere in the Bible. But they would say that if you were saying a comment to a man, it was less important to be honest than if you were taking an oath before God of that same truth. And so, as a ministry to these people who are in that culture, what does he do? What he's saying is... I. I will take on the extra accountability that I say this as, you know, as right hand to God, like I'm making a vow before him, not you, that I am not lying. And so if I'm lying, may I be held accountable by God himself, not you, Um, which would have made them go, oh, he's like being honest, honest, (laughs) you know, he's holding himself to a higher standard. Um and that this would have been something that was like a fearful comment for Jews when you put it at this level. Um, before God, I do not lie, he says. Right. Right. Verse 21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Um, anything special we need to know about Cilicia? Syria, we know sort of what's going on in there, but I've never heard of this other place. or didn't. So, I, I, it's not a familiar name to me. 
so when Paul goes on his first missionary journey, he goes into um, modern-day Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and Cilicia is one of those territories that's in Turkey, right? You know, so is Galatia, uh, Cappadocia. When you hear those names, all of them are little territories that are in modern-day Turkey. So Cilicia is like a neighbor of Galatia. It's right next door. Sure, sure. Okay. Someplace close by. Mm-hmm. South, southeast of Galatia. Okay. And then he says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And then verse 24, at the end of chapter 1, Paul says, And they glorified God because of me. Hmm. You know, it is one of those things where there have been a lot of people who have attacked the church, quote-unquote, verbally over the years, who have persecuted the church, but nothing like the kind of things that Paul did. Because Mm -hmm. in my modern memory, there has never been a time where the religious courts of the United States, which don't exist, in case you're looking for them, they don't exist. The religious courts of the United States have authorized the persecution and killing of those people who violated the official state religion. Once again, this doesn't exist, people. Don't look for it. Um, so the, the situation that Paul is describing has no parallel. You know, there's just not been a time when somebody has been, you know, given permission to persecute Specifically, this this ch- the Church of Jesus Christ, this this new church, the people of the way, um, and and so the fact that this guy was that he was given that kind of carte blanche and permission, he had letters so that he was allowed to go and to destroy them, mm-hmm. that he had turned around and that he was now preaching the same faith that he had tried to destroy. Obviously, that carried a lot of weight. With the people that were listening, mm-hmm. and it's it's an encouragement. Like it, it's weird to read this letter because you know Paul keeps he's insisting I didn't know anyone. You know I didn't go to the apostles until the you know after three years. I didn't go to James. I didn't go to Peter. You know nobody in Judea knew me. And you're like why why is he so insistent on this? And part of it is you know well the core of it is he got this from God. But it's like I'm trying to think of a. An illustration modern day that if I said, you know, somebody from the heart of Saudi Arabia or somewhere where they say, you know, people are coming to faith in dreams where God literally visits them in a dream. If they came forward and they had been, you know, let's say a radical on the radical end of Islam, suicide bomber, you know, killing people for the faith and that kind of stuff, which is what Paul was. Let's just put it put it down on the table. And all of a sudden, he comes to faith, and I say, and he says, God came to me in a dream. God spoke directly to me. But then you find out you know, that he's been attending gospel conferences, and he's been attending a church for three years and everything else. Now, all of a sudden, you're like, really? Was it a dream? Or yeah. What Paul is saying is, like, I didn't have that. This was directly from God. God intervened and called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and he's insisting this came from him. It came from him. It, it, I wasn't plugged in. I wasn't manipulated by them to say, okay, here's the most powerful thing you can say. No, it came from God. I wasn't co-opted by them, mm-hmm. which really is 
when you think of the impact that Paul is going to have, you know, apart from Jesus, Paul will be the most influential person in the history of the world for the spread of the gospel, uh, particularly at its foundation. God went to extraordinary lengths to call this man. Mm-hmm. And as I said, one of the most radical transformations that you will see in the history of the world, a man who was given over to hating Gentile cultures, given over to real zeal for the law to the point where he'd kill people for not keeping it, being transformed into one of the greatest evangelists for the message of grace and inclusion of the Gentiles, just a radical reversal. It's right. it's really amazing. It's, it makes me love this guy so much because you knew – that he had to crucify so much of his very core identity sure. to be obedient to Jesus. And he left it all, his political views, his his reputation, his standing, his what he had earned, you know, all of that lost. Right. He just sets it aside and becomes a radically different person for the sake of the gospel. I, this guy's amazing. Yeah. He very much is. Um, and – this letter, like all the other Pauline letters, and it's one of the things I love about them so much, is it's going to follow the same format, which is Paul is going to start with an introduction, then he's going to lay down some doctrinal principles, and then he's going to conclude this letter with saying, okay, now this is how you should apply all of that, which is that's the Paul way of, of writing mm-hmm. a letter. And Galatians is no exception to it. Um, mm-hmm. But this week, what we've seen here now in the first chapter – thus far, is Paul angrily denouncing the fact that these Galatians have allowed themselves to be detoured after another gospel, which is not another gospel. It's an entirely false narrative. They've allowed themselves to be deceived, and he has suffered a lot of personal insults and been ignored Mm -hmm. because he wasn't one of the apostles that was called directly by Jesus, which, you know, he points out is not true. He was mm-hmm. called by Jesus. It just wasn't Jesus before the resurrection. It was after the resurrection. Um, so, you know, he goes through all of these different things in here. And then as we get to the end of chapter one, he still really hasn't told us much about what's going on other than the fact that they've, They've been deceived into this false gospel. Well, when we get to chapter 2 next week, we're going to see Paul pick up with a whole lot more of what's been going on. Um, Mm -hmm. You're going to see the examples of the behavior of these guys, and you're going to understand, I think, why this whole thing is so frustrating for Paul. Because here they are trying to bring this radically new message about a radical new forgiveness and a radical new grace to these people. And you got these Judaizers going over there like, yeah, radical, like, you know, like my aunt's uh, uh, pita bread was radical last week, you know? (laughs) It's just not, it's not that kind of, you know, they're very dismissive. They're very, uh, yeah, we've done all that. And, you know, we got the stuff that works the best. So, when you start to see the kinds of things that they were up to, uh, I think you'll understand why Paul and, quite frankly, the other apostles were not super happy about this. And, of course, we will, as always, we will get to see Peter with some egg on his face because he just 
<laughs> he always does it's that. True. He it's always true. does that, you know? It's like if there's somebody who's going to get in the middle of a situation and take his sandal off and jam it right in his mouth, it's our guy Peter. Yeah. And Paul, just like he has no problem taking it to the Galatians, will clonk Peter on the head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the gospel is nothing that you can't sacrifice it. It's at the core of everything. Yeah. You know, that if if you call yourself a Protestant, Martin Luther referred to Galatians as the the influential book that launched you know, the Reformation through him. He, he said uh, that he was wedded to this book. He considered it his wife. It was precious to him. Yeah. Because, you know, he, if you know his story, he very much, like Paul, grew up feeling like, I have to earn it. I have to earn it. I have to be good enough. And yep. it became a slavery that left him crippled. And when he came across the book of Galatians and, and Romans, those two books together, and he saw the radical nature of God's grace and mercy and love for us, it changed him, radically changed him. And that's the hope as we go through this book that it'll remind us. And uh, Martin Luther didn't just refer to the book by you know, saying, my wife, or by saying, I'm married to this book necessarily. He actually used a very affectionate diminutive about the book in much the same way as, you know, I wouldn't call the book of Romans, you know, this is Tracy, but I might say, this is my sweetie snookums, you know, <laughs> heart you? of my heart or something like you, that. You, you might you might call Romans snookums? Snookums. <laughs> well, but that's the point. You might, actually. You might. I might. The point is that, that Martin Luther actually called it by a sort of, you know, personal nickname yeah. uh, for his wife. I guess just trying to point out that his his affection for it was even more crazy over the top than we were able to depict by that, um, and, and it was it was you know in his uh, in his understanding of law and gospel, Galatians and Romans were the absolute uh, rest. It rescued books. him. Yeah, they did. It rescued him. All you have to do is read the catechisms, and you will understand well, or read his commentary on Galatians. Which is only about, I don't know, 600 pages long. So, so we will be back next week to continue with our study in Galatians and find out exactly what it is these guys have been up to and why it is that it was, that it had got under the skin of Paul uh, quite so much. And folks, we do hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today, that it's been profitable for you. Um, it's fun for me to be back doing this with Sam again. Uh, hopefully as my, Health situation continues to improve, however much we're able to do that. Uh, things will become more normal for me. Just like last week, I am like piled up in the bed with pillows and laptops and microphones festooned about my body as I'm <laughs> recording this. Hopefully next week, I will have had yet another nerve injection that will allow me to sit normally uh, in a chair so that I can actually record uh, the podcast as I would normally at my desk with all of my study materials open in front of me. Uh, but it's been good to be back for the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've also completed our move to our new podcast host. If you've noticed that the podcast uh, release dates have been a little iffy. <laughs> it's come out of different <laughs> times over the last few weeks. Um, that's because we've been transitioning from one style of hosting to another. That's now complete. 
Uh, this week's episode should come out on time, as should all future ones. Uh, we think that we've got all of that working really well. And we managed to do it in a way that will not uh, have any issues with or disrupt your existing subscriptions. So if you are already subscribed to Out of Water, you don't need to worry about subscribing again. So that's all been taken care of for you. If you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That is R-I-O-Vista-Church.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash outofwater. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and as of this week, a bunch of smaller services that I can't be bothered to remember the names for, but we're there also, so we're all over the place now with Out of Water. So we hope that you are back with us again next week when we'll return with more Galatians, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.